CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Himalaya. Do you want to transform the way you learn? As regular listeners of this show know, Himalaya is a new audio-first learning platform with over 150 courses on personal and professional development taught by instructors like author Malcolm Gladwell, divorce court judge Lynn Toller, mindfulness expert Sharon Salzberg, and many other thought leaders. What Himalaya is doing is different than a typical podcast as these are carefully curated audio courses rather than just more folks talking. Each Himalaya audio course is organized so that each lesson is a digestible 15-minute episode that focuses on the big ideas. Think of it as a pack of snack-sized lessons that will nourish your brain. It's the best way for busy people like you and me to fit learning into our lives, and Himalaya's curated learning tracks make it easy to find courses you'll love on the topics you need to transform your life. Excelling at remote work, speaking with impact, anti-racism at work, top mental health tools, start your first online business... These are just some of Himalaya's extensive library of practical and transformative courses. If you're looking to grow, there's something for you. For a limited time, Think Like an Economist listeners can go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code ECON at checkout for a 14-day free trial. That's Himalaya.com. Enter the promo code ECON at checkout for a 14-day free trial. At a press conference following the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell explained that the Fed would be keeping interest rates at close to zero for quite some time in order to help the economy recover. Even though unemployment had fallen a bit, it was still high compared to pre-pandemic levels. Powell also explained that inflation was below the Fed's target of 2% per year. The Fed sets monetary policy, which is all about how central bankers help keep the macroeconomy working smoothly. Monetary policy is our subject on this week's Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Wolfers. We're teaching you the tools from economics to help transform your life and the world around you, whether interest rates are high or low. Nestor and Tavakoli Farah is with us. In recent episodes, we've been talking about the impact of interest rates on the macroeconomy. And in this episode, we're going to dive into the role central banks play in setting interest rates and helping to keep the economy operating at potential. We're going to take a look at what goes on in the world's central banks, like the Federal Reserve in the United States, the European Central Bank or ECB in Europe, the Bank of England or Bank of Japan, or in countries like Australia or Canada or India, the central bank's called the Reserve Bank. And in China, it's called the People's Bank of China. Every country has a central bank, and in most cases, they adjust the interest rate to try to tame the ups and downs of the business cycle. Most central banks focus on trying to achieve low and stable inflation, as well as low and stable unemployment. But they affect those outcomes indirectly, primarily by adjusting the interest rate. We're going to focus on the Fed, which is the U.S. Federal Reserve, the central bank in the U.S. But the mechanics are pretty similar in most of the world's leading economies. Eight times a year, the Fed holds a meeting called the Federal Open Market Committee to set interest rates. And it's attended by the 
Fed's governors, as well as the presidents of the regional Federal Reserve Banks. The center of the U.S. system is the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board runs the Federal Open Market Committee, which has to reach a decision across the 12 voting members of what to do about interest rates and monetary policy. Well, this is a meeting, perhaps like a meeting you've been to where you have to make a decision. The decisions here are pretty high stakes. Picture a room, and I've been in the room, which has a big table and the chair of the Federal Reserve sitting right in the middle. So right now that's Jay Powell. He'll start by deciding who's going to speak and in what order. And exactly what are these experts all discussing at the Federal Open Market Committee? There are three main questions they're trying to answer. First, what are your forecasts for the US economy? Second, what are the right policy choices given those forecasts? And third, how should the Fed communicate its plans to the public? So first, it's about forecasts. Yeah. So the chair starts by asking everyone to share their views about the current state of the economy and their projections for where things are going to go. This is where we can really hear about regional differences from the Fed Bank presidents from around the country who share their findings and analysis from crunching the numbers and also from having spoken to local businesses as well. To clarify, in the US there are regional Federal Reserve Banks and those presidents all come to the meeting to share their views and take turns as voting members. Right, and that helps paint a full picture of where different experts think the economy might be headed. Because behind the people attending the FOMC meeting are hundreds of people studying the U.S. economy and trying to forecast where it's headed. Because the big decision, which is what's the right policy choice, depends on understanding exactly what's going on with the economic outlook. So they're discussing what should happen to the interest rate. Remember, the real interest rate is the opportunity cost of spending for consumers who might decide it isn't worth saving as much if interest rates go down or who might decide to borrow to buy a car or a house because interest rates have gone down. Similarly, businesses might decide to borrow more or make greater investments if interest rates go down. Of course, the opposite is also true. They raise rates. Both consumers and businesses might decide to spend less today, save more for tomorrow. The Fed will raise the real interest rate when the economy is overheating and inflation is high so that people will spend less. And it will lower the interest rate when the economy may be underperforming and inflation's low so that people spend more today. Yes. Remember, the Fed is aiming for stable inflation and a sustainable employment rate, which they influence through interest rates. Once they've debated all the options about how these are going to affect the economy, the Fed chair tends to recommend a course of action. And the rest of the committee votes on it. And the final question at the meeting is about how the Fed should communicate its plans to the public. Yeah, Fed chairs need to be really careful about what they say and to whom. Even a small offhand comment at a party has been known to leak out, get spread by the press and make big waves in financial markets. The Fed chair issues a statement and holds a press conference after every meeting explaining their decisions. And they also publish their forecasts. This is relatively new that the Fed aims for this greater transparency. It's all about trying to help people set clear expectations. And we talk about expectations a lot when we talk about the macroeconomy. That's right. Expectations are absolutely critical to macroeconomics. It's because when people are trying to decide what to do, they're not just thinking about the state of things today, they're also thinking about the future. So if people think the Fed's going to raise rates in the near term, Well, they may make different decisions than if they thought that the interest rates would continue to be low for a while. 
The Fed tries to shape expectations through these statements and press conferences and releasing their forecasts, and they try to give some guidance on what they may do in the future. This is known as forward guidance, and it's all about trying to shape expectations. Language really matters here. Recently, the Fed said it wasn't going to raise rates based on simple forecasts of an economic recovery. They said they were going to wait for evidence of a recovery. This led them to say that they didn't expect to raise interest rates for a period of three years. The idea is to convince people they can rely on the Fed to keep interest rates low, therefore spending in the economy high for the next three years. The hope is that this spurs more business investment. The Fed's two goals are stable prices or stable inflation and a maximum sustainable employment rate. These are known as the Fed's dual mandate. Now let's dig into these a little more. First, stable prices. What do we mean by this? When inflation is sufficiently low and stable, most people can make plans and basically ignore inflation. They can focus on doing business. Over the past few decades, most central banks have turned to targeting a very specific low inflation rate and trying to keep inflation there. Most developed countries aim to keep inflation around 2% a year. The Fed started announcing its target to the public in 2012 with the hopes that this would convince people all across the economy that inflation would in fact be low and stable. By being really transparent about the inflation rate they're targeting, the hope is that the expectation will trickle through the economy as price setters raise their prices in line with that low and stable expected inflation rate of 2%. So the goal was, if we convince people there'll be low inflation, that'll create the reality of low inflation. We always hear about the dangers of inflation, though. So why do we have 2% inflation? Why do we want any inflation at all? There's a few reasons for this. One is that if we had no inflation at all, it's going to be really hard for employers to cut wages if the economy were to turn down. If there's inflation, you can cut people's real wages just by not adjusting their money wages. And that can help buffer some economic shocks. Okay, but people really don't want to hear about, whoa, isn't this great? It lets us cut people's wages in a secret way. But in a recession or a downturn, if employers can't cut the real wage, they may have to lay people off instead. So 0% inflation might lead to higher unemployment during recessions. Another reason is that by keeping inflation above zero, the Fed has more room to cut the real interest rate. This is a really important concept called the zero lower bound. So the Fed wants to try to lower interest rates if we're in a recession, but it can't really lower rates below zero percent because the real interest rate is the nominal interest rate minus inflation. So if there's no inflation, then the Fed has less room to maneuver to cut the real interest rate. This has been one of the things that's been challenging central banks across the globe over the last few decades. There's something else. If we were to target a 0% rate of inflation, well, there's the risk that instead of inflation, we'll end up with deflation. Deflation is when overall price levels are falling, which is the same as a negative inflation rate. Yeah, so it sounds great, right? Now, we all want things to be on sale. So if I told you that you know, you're thinking about I don't know, going out and buying a new car, but it might be 5% cheaper if you wait. What are you likely to do? I will probably wait. Right. That is the problem of deflation. If everyone does that, no one's buying cars, the economy enters a recession. It's worse than that. You've got deflation, the economy enters a recession, that's going to cause more? Deflation. Exactly. And so it can create a spiral of more deflation, more recession, more deflation. 
The last reason that central banks tend to not aim for 0% inflation is that many economists believe that the measured inflation rate overstates the actual inflation rate. Remember in our earlier episode about inflation, we looked at how inflation rate calculations often don't take into account things such as quality improvements in many products, which might effectively reduce the cost of living. So if we aimed for 0% measured inflation, we could actually end up with deflation. So they aim for 2% inflation and steer interest rates to try to keep inflation stable at 2%. But employment is also important to the Fed too, right? Yes, the Fed's dual mandate is also about maximum sustainable employment. This is what happens when the economy is operating at its potential. It doesn't get rid of unemployment because some unemployment is caused by other factors like the time it takes you to look for a job or if you need to retrain to keep up with changes in the economy. So what it's trying to do is target the lowest sustainable rate of unemployment or the highest sustainable level of employment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We've gone through what happens at the Federal Open Market Committee. How does the Fed choose the interest rate? Well, policymakers start by thinking about something called the neutral interest rate. This isn't an interest rate that you can look up in the newspaper because it's really more of an idea than a specific interest rate. Think of it as the Goldilocks interest rate that'll cause the economy to be not too hot nor too cold. It's a really important baseline because the idea is if you set the real interest rate higher than its neutral rate, it'll lead output to grow a bit more slowly than its potential, leading to unused resources and unemployment. Or if you keep the real interest rate lower than the neutral rate, it'll push output to grow faster than potential, potentially sparking inflation. Economists used to think that the neutral real interest rate was about 2%, but it's been falling as part of a trend called secular stagnation. We'll talk about secular stagnation in a bonus episode with Larry Summers, but the implication is that today the neutral real interest rate is probably less than 1%. So we have the neutral real interest rate, which is an important baseline, What else do these central bankers look at when they're setting the interest rate? They also compare inflation to their inflation target. If inflation's higher than the Fed's target, this is a signal to the Fed that it should set the interest rate higher than the neutral real rate so it can encourage people and businesses to spend less and save more. That spending less will reduce demand, which in turn will lead to lower inflation. It's not just the Fed that targets inflation. So does the European Central Bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, and just about every major country. 
In each case, policymakers look at the gap between inflation and the target level of inflation to guide them on just how much they need to change the real interest rate. And just a moment ago, you mentioned the output gap, which is also closely related to the unemployment rate. Yeah, when the economy is producing less than its potential, then there are lots of unused resources, including unemployed workers. That's a problem. And so central bankers also think about the output gap and how they can address it when they're setting rates. Nearly every central bank takes a look at the state of their labor market and the output gap when setting interest rates, but they talk about it differently. In countries like the U.S. or Australia, the central bank is explicitly told by the government that it needs to adjust rates in response to both inflation and employment. In other countries, the government tells the central bank to focus only on inflation. For instance, the European Central Bank says that its main aim is to keep inflation low. But if you remember the Phillips curve, you'll know that the output gap and unemployment also affect inflation. And so the European Central Bank also ends up adjusting interest rates in response to output and the state of the labour market, but it does so because those things affect the future of inflation. When output exceeds potential, central banks tend to respond by setting real interest rates a bit higher, understanding that this will reduce demand, therefore reduce the output gap, and reduce inflation. Or if output's below potential and people are unemployed, a central bank will typically try to help people get back to work by setting a real interest rate a bit lower. Their hope is that this will stimulate more spending, leading to more output and more hiring. So far you've been talking about the real interest rate, but the Fed sets the nominal interest rate. Yeah, and so this means that once the Fed decides on what the real interest rate should be, It needs to add inflation to it in order to get the nominal interest rate, which is what it will ultimately announce. And we call this the federal funds rate. Yeah, the Fed adjusts a very specific interest rate. We call that the federal funds rate. But as we'll talk about in a moment, changes in that rate end up affecting nearly every other interest rate in the economy, from car loans to business investment loans. So to wrap up, central banks like the Fed start by thinking about a baseline neutral real interest rate. And they'll set that rate a bit higher if inflation is likely to exceed its target. They'll adjust it a bit lower if unemployment is likely to be high because output is too weak. And of course, they actually set a nominal interest rate, which is equal to their preferred real interest rate plus inflation. There's one more important thing. Central bankers don't just look at today's inflation or unemployment numbers. They're also looking at forecasts of the future path of the economy so they can predict and get ahead of any looming problems. Now, how exactly does the central bank set the interest rate? As we discussed, the Federal Reserve sets one main interest rate called the federal funds rate. It's a pretty strange interest rate. It's not one you're going to face in your daily life because it's the rate that banks charge each other for overnight loans. But that rate really matters because when banks can borrow from each other at low rates, they can lend to you and I and to millions of other people and businesses at low rates too. So the effects of changing the federal funds rate ripple out and affect the rate on just about everything from the rate on personal loans to the interest rate on car loans to business loans. You're saying that the federal funds rate is an overnight interest rate or the interest rate on a one-day loan. Most loans last longer than this, though. Yeah, but when you think about a longer loan, let's say a two-day loan, we can think about a two-day loan as a one-day loan from today till tomorrow and then another one-day loan from tomorrow till the next day. That means the interest rate on a two-day loan will be equal to the overnight interest rate today plus whatever we expect the overnight interest rate to be tomorrow. You can take this logic even further. The interest rate on a 30-day loan is equal to today's 
overnight interest rate plus the interest rate people expect the Fed to charge for each of the subsequent 29 days. So now you're getting that sense of why expectations really matter. What interest rate are they going to pay each and every day over, say, the next 30 days, the next 60 days, the next year? Follow that logic far enough, and you'll see that the changes in the overnight interest rate affect the one-year interest rate, the two-year interest rate, the 10-year interest rate, and so on. So how does the Fed set this overnight interest rate that we call the federal funds rate? One answer is that it's complicated. The simpler answer is that the Fed effectively announces that it's willing to borrow or lend any amount of money to banks at a particular rate. So if the Fed wants to set the federal funds rate at 1.5%, it'll say that it's willing to borrow any amount of money at 1.5%. Overnight from these banks. By being willing to borrow any amount of money at a particular rate, it's effectively setting kind of a floor, meaning that other banks would rather lend money to the Fed at that rate than lend money to anybody else at a lower rate. So those banks will only lend money out to other banks or to you or to me if the rate is at least as high as that floor. The Fed refers to this as the ample reserves framework or sometimes the floor framework. And this is essentially how the Fed sets a floor or a lower bound or a minimum interest rate that one financial institution will be willing to charge to lend to another. And the Fed also sets a ceiling. Basically, it says we'll lend any amount of money at another interest rate that you or I might call the ceiling, but they call the discount rate. If a bank can borrow money from the Fed at, say, 1.75%, it'll never borrow money from others at a higher rate. So there's a floor on the federal funds rate of, say, 1.5% and a ceiling of, say, 1.75%. What that means is that the federal funds rate will end up somewhere in that very narrow window. By the way, all of this used to operate very differently. So if you hear an economist talking about open market operations, they're typically talking about how the Fed used to operate. What about quantitative easing? I keep reading newspaper headlines about this. And sometimes they'll just call it QE. Now, remember we said that the Fed normally operates by affecting the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate on overnight loans? Well, quantitative easing is just a terrible term for when the Fed tries to buy and sell long-term bonds as a way of changing long-term interest rates. So instead of changing the overnight interest rate, quantitative easing is about lowering long-term interest rates, like the rate on 10-year loans. You'll often hear people talk about the Fed's balance sheets. That's about the amount of these long-term bonds that they're holding on to and whether they plan to sell them or buy more of them in the future. And all of that's about affecting long-term interest rates. We've been talking so much about what central banks do and what financial institutions do, and they all sound so abstract and distant from our lives. How do all these adjustments to the federal funds rate impact us as everyday people living and working in the economy? It does affect us all because these changes in the market for overnight loans will ripple through the economy and lead banks to change the interest rate. They charge consumers for credit cards, loans, mortgages, etc. So the federal funds rate will really trickle out through the entire economy. And it doesn't just affect the interest rate you're going to pay on your car loan or on your mortgage. Remember that the interest rate is all about changing the value of consuming today versus consuming tomorrow. And so it's going to change the spending plans that make most sense for you. If interest rates are high, you should probably save more because it's really worth saving. And if interest rates are low, maybe there's a stronger case to be made for spending more today. And more demand today means businesses will hire more people. That also means more output. 
and there could be supply constraints so we could see prices rising pushing up inflation it all really depends on how much excess capacity there is in the economy so all of this is going to shape the opportunities you're offered because the state of the labor market is really dependent on what the fed does it's also going to affect the prices that you face at the supermarket because inflation is largely determined by the fed's actions What can we be thinking about over the next few days so that we can really get our heads around all this? You're going to be making a lot of decisions over the next week. It might be whether to apply for a new job. It might be whether to refinance your mortgage. It might be whether to buy something today before the prices go up or down. As you're making each of those decisions, think about the role that the central bank in your country is playing in shaping your decisions. Yeah, one way to do that would be to think about what would you actually do if interest rates were higher? Or what would you do if interest rates were lower? Then start to think about multiplying that by, well, all the people in your country. And that'll give you a sense of how you think the macro economy will move. Betsy, Justin, thanks for walking us through monetary policy. This one's near and dear to our hearts. And as my first ever job out of college was working for the central bank. And hey, Betsy, what was yours? Was working for the central bank at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening. There's a lot more from this show and others like it on the Himalaya Learning Platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. For exclusive content, including bonus episodes and supplemental materials, go to Himalaya.com econ and enter promo code econ at checkout for your first 14 days free. Himalaya.com slash econ has loads of great shows like ours, so try it out using the promo code econ at checkout to get your first 14 days free. It's time to think like an economist. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.